Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, as we do every week, we thank you that we have a place to worship like Lakeside. Lord, you are building your church around the world. And for us, our little corner of the universal church is this facility here on Sunset Point Road. Lord, we thank you for the people that are here. The church is not the building, it's the people. We thank you for our pastor and his passion to proclaim truth and to point us towards the truth. And pray, Lord, that you give us ears to hear as we have opportunities to listen to a variety of teachers at times. Always help us to be discerning, to discern truth from error so that we are becoming more and more like Christ based in part on what we hear and what we apply. Lord, I pray for today, and I pray that as we begin to go through this section dealing with false teachers, that you'll open our eyes. Lord, not just in terms of of what is in the text, but also open our eyes to what's around us, because the types of people being described in your word still exist 2,000 years after this letter was written, and they are amongst us and around us. So I pray that you give us ears to hear what you have for us, and we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to begin today talking on the next section of Second Peter, as you been a a couple of weeks for a variety of reasons since I've been here teaching this, but as we begin this text, it's a reminder that as we're in chapter 2, Peter is dealing primarily with false teachers. He began the beginning of the chapter warning about false teachers, just like there were false prophets in the Old Testament, there'll be false teachers amongst the church. And he began by giving some characteristics of those false teachers, and that was what we covered in verses 1 to 3, and then he started focusing on the reality that we shouldn't worry that the false teachers are going to get away with it. As we've talked over multiple weeks as we taught on the text, the next section from verse 4 through the middle of verse 10 is really just supposed to encourage us. It's a reminder that evil doesn't win. We look around us and it looks like evil's winning, but the word of God makes it clear. God knows how to deal justly with those who are wicked. And he gave examples of fallen angels who sinned. He gave the example of the people in the time of of Noah, I almost said Moses, but Moses didn't get in the ark, that was Noah. So in the time of Noah, the wicked people were dealt with and Sodom and Gomorrah and their immorality and wickedness, they were judged. Likewise, the encouragement to us living amongst all of the evil is that God also knows how to rescue the righteous. That's what specifically what he says. And the examples are, of course, Noah and Lot. So for us, he begins and he talks about false teachers. Then he wants to make us comforted by the fact, look, they'll get what's due them. Don't worry about them. Don't, don't get panicked. And God will protect you even in evil times. You're going to be okay. And then in the middle of verse 10, and again, the verses were not inspired by God. They were added later. In the middle of verse 10, he turns back to false teachers. He turns back to the characteristic and the lifestyle of false teachers. And that's where we find ourselves today. And so as we go through this, there is going to be some overlap and some repetition because he said some things in verses 1 to 3 about their immorality and their greed and their judgment. And he's going to repeat some of those things using different wording, but we're going to dig deeper into these traits of false teachers because that's what Peter does. So I'm going to start this section today, and really it's from the middle of verse 10 to the end of the chapter, which is verse 22. 
but there's a natural division after verse 16. It doesn't transition to a completely different thought, still on the idea of what happens and what is related to false teachers. But for the next section, I'm outlining it based on the middle of verse 10 down to verse 16. So with that, follow along with me, and I'm going to go through, I'm going to read through this next section, beginning in the middle of verse 10. Peter says this, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. Now, there's a lot here, but I think it's going to be understandable. But Peter begins to get very graphic with his denunciation of these false teachers that reside in churches. And so based on what he says, I've divided this up into a five-part outline. It's five traits of false teachers. Earlier in verses 1 to 3, we saw four characteristics of false teachers. There is some overlap here. And in fact, my five points, they sometimes bleed together because... What constitutes one thing also constitutes another. But for now, if you take notes, we're going to see going through this section of Scripture five traits of false teachers. And the first trait is this, arrogant self-promotion. Arrogant self-promotion. Now I'm going to have to develop this so that you see where I'm coming from. But a lot of that comes from the first two words, daring self-willed. So Peter's talked about all of God rescuing the righteous and punishing the wicked, and now he comes back to false teachers. Daring self-willed, they, they are the false teachers that he said would come in the earlier part of the chapter. The word daring refers to somebody who doesn't really care about the consequences. This person is reckless and carefree when it comes to defying God. Even the conventions of proper behavior, as we'll see later, whatever the standards are, they'll blow right past them. They don't mind. They could care less because they are self-willed, which really isn't just a function of they're doing what they want. All of us have to fight against that. This goes beyond that, and this is the idea of everything in their life is for their own pleasure. It's so that it will fulfill their lust and their desires. So they don't care about God. They don't care about others. All that they exist to do 
is for themselves. And so their God is easy to define. They see it every time they look in the mirror. They're in love with themselves. They're so self-absorbed that even in their teaching ministry, even in what they say, it's all about building themselves up. It's all about how can I manipulate the people that hear my voice so that they ultimately serve me for my pleasure. They're presumptuous. They're conceited. The entire world, the entire church revolves around them. They'll say and do anything as long as the outcome is their enjoyment, their pleasure. Now, part of why I talk about self-promotion is because they elevate themselves to places they shouldn't elevate themselves, and we see that based on the example of what Peter says. Now, the example is a little bit controversial, but I think it's understandable based on a similar teaching in the book of Jude. But it comes to this next part, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So I think from the context, and as we'll elaborate, I think this, we'll see what's being said here, but the idea is this reviling of angelic majesties is occurring as part of their teaching ministry. As you imagine, it's occurring from the pulpit. They're saying these things in their official capacity as teachers. And remember, they're claiming to be Christians. They're not. But they're claiming to be Christian teachers. In fact, as we'll see later, they're within the church interacting with church people. So whatever this means, says they do not tremble when they revile angelic ministries. This is a part of their official capacity. They're doing this as part of their teaching. Now, they do not tremble simply means they are not afraid. They're not fearful, and the implication is they should be. They're not afraid, though. They'll say anything. Again, this is all about me. This is bringing attention to me. Their world revolves around me. And it says they do not tremble, they don't fear when they revile. And revile means they're speaking against something. They're speaking badly about something. The idea of slander could be involved. The idea in certain contexts could be blasphemy. But whatever is going on, they're spouting out something negative. They're speaking badly about someone. And they're doing it in a way that lifts themselves up. They're placing themselves above whatever they're criticizing. And this is where it gets a little bit confusing if If you start studying on this, it gets even more confusing, but I don't think it needs to be. I'm not going to go into all the side roads, but depending on what version you have, you can see some of the issue with the word angelic majesties. New American Standard translates this word angelic majesties, but other translations use different phraseologies. So for example, the ESV translates that phrase glorious ones. Well, that sounds very positive. Glorious, that's a good thing. King James, the old King James, translates it dignities. That could be a positive or a negative. The NIV 
translates it celestial beings, which is really neutral. These are all interpretive decisions made by those who are translating from Greek to English. But again, without going into all the nuances, I don't believe this is talking about civic affairs. Some people think that. I don't believe it's talking about other church leaders. Some people think that. I think it's talking about angels. But I think in the context, despite any uh, thing else, it's talking about fallen angels. And again, when I read later Jude, you'll see exactly why I say that. But what in essence Peter is saying is, look, these false teachers, they're arrogant. It's all about their own pleasure. They're railing against and speaking badly against demonic powers. And they're doing it for their own edification and glory. It's not hard to imagine that they're proclaiming themselves superior to those demonic forces. Suggesting that they have more power and authority than those angelic beings. Suggesting that they control things, not those creatures. I believe they would be publicly teaching something along the lines of the fact of they have more power and authority than those demons do, not because of Christ, but because of their own power, their own self-interest. They would be speaking in such a way to make it appear that they were greater than they really were. Other people might be afraid, but I'm not. Peter makes it clear their bragging is not only false, it's dangerous. It's a violation of the created order. He says, they do not tremble when they revile angelic ministries, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. Peter's saying, these foolish, false teachers are doing something that not even the holy angels would do. They've stepped across the boundaries. And again, the idea is they're building themselves up. Because they're reckless, they don't care. They're not afraid. They should be. It's all about them. They want themselves to look more powerful and more bold and more spiritual when the reality is they're bankrupt. It's interesting. The angels are far greater than these false teachers in their natural state. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But that's what Peter's saying. Angels who are greater in might and power. In other words, these angels, if anything... If anybody was going to talk bad about those fallen creatures, it would be the powerful angels. He said they don't even do that. They wouldn't even do what these false teachers do. It says they do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord, and yet the reality is those holy angels would have seen Satan's rebellion. They would have seen a third of the other angels cast out. They would have at one point before the fall of Satan been peers with them. They understand the power, and they also understand the fall And Peter is saying, these holy angels, who themselves are powerful, wouldn't even do what these false teachers are foolishly doing. These teachers are so arrogant and so self-absorbed and so willing to say anything so that other people will look at them and admire them and revere them, they'll go where even angels fear to tread. 
They'll say anything to keep the attention on themselves and to make themselves seem like spiritual giants. I would not encourage you to go looking for this, but, but you see it all over the place nowadays. I did a paper on demons in seminary, and I wouldn't encourage anybody to study demons, but it was amazing the number of people that their whole ministry supposedly is their power over demons. They're caricatures, but they're just, they know what they're doing, and they're talking to the demons, and they have the authority, and they claim it's in Jesus' name, but it's not, because they don't have any authority. They're doing exactly what Peter says, and they're doing it shamelessly, and in fact, they're getting an audience, and they're making money doing it. They're pretending that they have power over Satan and over fallen demons that only Jesus has. Again, my interpretation of this is influenced by Jude. Jude is a short book. There's only one chapter. But in verses 8 and 9, Jude says this, also talking about false teachers in a very, very similar context. Jude says this, Yet in the same way these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. I think this explains in more detail exactly what Peter's talking about. There is a, an account not recorded elsewhere in Scripture, but if you remember in Deuteronomy, Moses went up on the mountain and he died there. That was it. He died on the mountain. God took his life. And we don't know this until we get to the New Testament, but apparently Satan, for his own vile, deceptive purposes, wanted the body of Moses. Who knows what he would have done with it, artificial, whatever, to steer God's people astray. But Michael the archangel, who is powerful, only reference to two archangels, Michael and Gabriel. He's amongst the angels, he's powerful, and he's dealing with another powerful angel, Satan, the fallen angel. What Jude is saying that even in that circumstance, Michael the archangel did not start reviling against Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. He left that in the Lord's hands. The implication is that if Michael the archangel who serves the Lord knows not to speak badly even of Satan, then what are these fools who are false teachers doing who are doing that very thing. They're crossing boundaries that even the most powerful servants of the Lord in heaven don't cross. Here's the reality. Even fallen angels, for all of their wickedness, they're still very, very powerful. That's why Paul in Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We don't fear those creatures. The Bible says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. We don't have to live in fear, but by the same token, we should not have an arrogant presumption that says, everybody look at me and let me show you what I can do. And that's what those false teachers were doing. They were liars but they were being foolish and it was all about promoting themselves. 
again, in their natural state, angels occupy a different level than humans. Now, we are unique in creation, but the Bible says this in Hebrews 2, 6 and 7, quoting from the Old Testament, and ultimately this is messianic, but in the context it's talking about humanity. It says, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you were concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. In other words, the angels in the natural state of things have an esteemed state before the Lord. And Peter's saying, look out for these false teachers. They're crossing boundaries that shouldn't be crossed and they're not even afraid of it. They're reckless. They'll say anything to keep the eyes on them and really it's all about how wonderful they are. Again, you go back and I don't encourage you to do this, but if you ever watch those ministries of people who supposedly have all this power over demon and demons and they got videos and all this stuff, at the end of the day, when you get to the end of the video, it's always the same thing. Send us money. Send us money. Send us money. Because it's not about spiritual warfare. It's about self-promotion. So the first trait of false teachers, I believe, understanding it from the context, is arrogant self-promotion. The second trait is this, ignorant declarations. Ignorant declarations. And I even looked at synonyms of declarations because just statements, pronouncements. The point is they say a lot of things out of ignorance. Verse 12. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of these creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. Again, this is very damning language by Peter because he's pointing out that these false teachers who build themselves up who want the esteem of everyone, who make themselves the center of every conversation, the center of everything, it's all about me, he's saying they're really just like dumb animals. Whatever else they say, they're ignorant and foolish. Unreasoning animals. This really is just any type of wild animal. They operate by instinct. They don't really process information. They're not created in the image of God. Peter's not calling them names. He's just stating what they really are. They're just like animals of the forest. And this is tragic because even unbelievers are created in the image of God. In Genesis 9, 6, it's where God prescribes capital punishment for killing humanity. And the reason is this. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So even amongst unbelievers, there's the residual image of God that is there. And yet Peter is saying these men have abandoned even that basic and they're going back to animals. They're like animals. They don't think. Again, that's a tragic thing. He's saying they're unreasoning, unthinking. They're just driven by their own selfish base instincts. And yet they're proclaiming themselves to be teachers and authorities who know something. The reality is Paul describes well what happens to someone who hardens themselves in sin and these false teachers fit within this context. Romans 1.21 For even though they knew God, they did not honor God or did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations 
and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 28 of Romans 1, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And as we go further into 2 Peter, you're going to see how well Paul's words fit these false teachers. But the idea is this. They have lost the capacity to think rationally anymore. They're so in tune with their own lust that they're living solely for the moment of what is in it for me. Like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. In other words, they're no different than just a wild animal. The next part, reviling where they have no knowledge. Again, it's tying in, but it's talking about the specific teaching ministry. They don't know what they're talking about, but they come across as an expert. That really brings it home. They're teaching all kinds of things. And they don't have any real knowledge of what they're talking about. They're proclaiming to be wise, but they're actually fools. They're proclaiming to be enlightened with knowledge, and yet the reality is their hearts are darkened, and they don't really know anything spiritual. Such that just like animals that can be captured and killed because they only follow their instincts, that can happen to these false teachers. I grew up in Perry. You can't grow up in Perry without hunting some. I'm not a hunter. I'm not an expert in any sense. But I used to go hunting. And the reality is, people who wanted to tilt the playing field knew how to bait animals. So if you throw some stuff out, the turkeys will congregate there. You throw other stuff out, the deer will show up. It's the same way when you look at Africa. If they want to hunt certain kinds of animals, they know how to get them. Somebody wants to hunt an alligator, you can do it. You watch the tour boats in Louisiana and they hold a chicken up over the water and some of the alligators have trained themselves to come up. The point is this, animals don't really have any self-awareness. They just have the instincts that God programmed into them such that they do whatever it is that they do. And if you want to trap them and kill them, you can do it. I remember my grandfather, my mom's dad, he used to trap raccoons. And all you would do is you'd put a particular smell on a tree. And they were dumb enough that they would keep and they'd get their foot in the trap and they'd be caught all and over. And it wasn't hard to do because they didn't think. It was just instincts. The feeling of the moment. What do they smell, taste, touch? Peter is equating these false teachers who are lifting themselves up and he's saying, they're just like animals and they're going to be killed as well. I, I marvel at some of the people that Peter is describing because they're on TV every week. They're all over the internet. Again, I would never encourage you to listen to them. Don't. It's not profitable. The only reason I've ever listened to them is in a shepherding capacity. But I'm always amazed. It's like, how can anybody listen to them? They're talking nonsense. They're saying things that, number one, they aren't in Scripture, but, but they're just talking out whatever they think. They're telling stories about when they were in heaven with Jesus, and it sounded like this, and they, it's just foolishness, and yet their churches are a whole lot bigger than Lakeside. Their pastors are flying around on a private jet, not driving a Toyota like Pastor Steve. They're staying in penthouse suites. They've got houses all over the country. 
And it's all about them. Peter warned us about them. And they're here amongst us today. And they act like they know what they're talking about, but they don't. And even a little Berean attitude that says, let me examine the scripture to see if these things are so, would reveal it, but they found gullible audiences. Titus 1, the first part of verse 10 says, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers. They're all around us. And they're in pulpits. And they're at conferences. And what's tragic is they're speaking from ignorance. They're making declarations about all kinds of things and they don't know what they're talking about because at the end of the day, they don't care. It's just about them and yet the reality is they're digging their own grave, so to speak. Peter says, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. Again, the idea is they're not getting away with it. Yeah, they got the private jet now and they've got the nice resort-style life right now. But one day, just like those animals, they're going to be captured and killed, but they're going to stand before a holy God. But again, Peter's warning us about them because he says these kind of people are going to be in churches, and every one of us has to be on the lookout for that. Praise the Lord that they're not here at Lakeside, but everybody at Lakeside is hearing teaching from somewhere else because of the internet because of YouTube videos, because your family member sends you this, and oh, listen to this person talk about that. There are a lot of ignorant declarations being made by people claiming to be teachers who don't really know what they're talking about. Again, if you've lived in areas when a gator gets aggressive, what do they do? They call out a trapper, they come out and they trap them and they kill them. Happens all around us. My brother-in-law up in Perry has got a licensed gator trapper. In California, that would happen with mountain lions. Occasionally, a mountain lion would come down and attack a jogger or somebody riding a bike. They'd take care of it. Same way with bears, same way with anything. You just trap them and you kill them. And that's the fate of these false teachers. But Peter makes it clear. They're so self-absorbed, they don't realize what's happening. They're going to the slaughter and they don't know it. But Peter now transitions. It's not just what they say that's problematic. It's how they live. And we're only going to just get into this point today. So the first trait of false teachers, arrogant self-promotion, then ignorant declarations, and third, it's flamboyant immorality. Flamboyant immorality. This is in-your-face immorality. This is unapologetic, look at me, immorality. The middle of verse 13. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. And again, we're only going to get into the very beginning of this. But remember, at the beginning of chapter 2, in verse 2, Peter said, many will follow their sensuality. And as I explained at that time, once you sort out the pronouns, what he means is many people in the church 
will follow the sensuality of the false teachers, meaning the false teachers will live sexually immoral lives and some of the church members seeing them will follow after their example. Many will follow their sensuality. In other words, the false teachers lead, the people follow. Now Peter's coming back to that idea of immorality, but it's a broader sense here. And what he's trying to do is painting a picture that's really humiliating and it shows that false teachers are shameless. He says this, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Again, this all comes back to their God. They are doing it for themselves. This is all about them. Reveling has the idea that they are doing all these things for their own pleasure. And the way he phrases this, as we'll see in a moment, he's saying they're worse than even unbelievers with how flamboyant and how in your face they are with their immorality of various stripes. Their selfish pursuit of pleasure, their self-indulgence for their own pleasure really knows no boundaries. Even pagans have boundaries. The false teachers are crossing those boundaries. He says they counted a pleasure to revel. And this likely because of what follows probably includes certain sexual indulgences, but it probably goes beyond that to just any type of revelry, drunkenness, gluttony. Anytime I think of sexual immorality and drunkenness and gluttony, I think of Las Vegas. This is like a Las Vegas in the church. Las Vegas, amongst Christians, sexual immorality and drunkenness and gluttonous and the whole party lifestyle. And this is Peter's emphasis here. It's bad enough that they're reveling that way. Again, God gave us food and drink to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with enjoying life. But it's the excess, the absence of self-control, the taking instead of having a glass of wine, drinking three bottles of wine and being drunk. It's not just enjoying the sexual relationship between a man and woman in the context of a covenant marriage before God, which is good and holy and appropriate, but it's absolutely throwing off those boundaries and engaging in sexual relations that transcend God's laws. And Peter's point here is that they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. And here's his point. These false teachers are not hiding in the dark with their behavior. They are loud. They're flamboyant. They don't care who sees. They don't care who knows. It's in the daytime. Something that according to the scriptures not even unbelievers would normally do. John 3, 19 and 20 talks about the nature of sin and the difference supposed to be for us, us in Christ and us before Christ. But he says this in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. 
For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Now, Jesus using a regular aspect of life to point out a spiritual principle, which is normally deeds stay in the dark. Because if I'm in the dark, you can't see me. You don't know it was me. Human nature in its corrupt state is such that still you avoid things. You stay in the darkness. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, again, there's this dark and light. And as we come to the end of this little section, it's verses 4 to 8, but it starts this way. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So that let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Verse 7. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. In other words, the principle is played out that that kind of behavior occurs after hours. That's the general normal way of doing things. It's not a secret. Debbie and I go on cruises whenever we can. We can't go as much as we would like. But most every port nowadays has a Jimmy Buffett Margaritaville somewhere. There's a restaurant. And you go through the restaurant and, or the gift shop and there's always a t-shirt somewhere that says something along the lines of it's five o'clock somewhere. What's the implication? You can drink any time of day here. But what's behind it is most people think you don't do that in the daytime. That's just secular unbelievers of, well, of course you wait till later. Peter's point is this. Even amongst pagans, Normally you do certain things in the dark because it's shameful. Yeah, they enjoy them, they're doing them, but they do it at least in the dark because you don't want to be exposed to the light. You don't want people to see what you're doing. Peter's saying these false teachers are so different. They enjoy doing it in the daytime. They're not running away from their sin. They're not hiding their sin. In fact... They're deceiving themselves and trying to deceive others into saying that sin isn't even sin. Come on, come with me. Do what I'm doing. And what's so tragic, again, is that these aren't unbelievers changing the rules for secular society, for revelry. This is someone claiming to be a believer, claiming to be a leader in a church, claiming to care about God's sheep and he's leading them to the same destruction that he's going to face. Again, we're going to see in a few moments that, or the next time we are here, when we go further in the text, a lot of this is sexual immorality, trying to convince weak-willed people in fact, what's being described here is similar to the description of men on earth at the time of Noah. The building up of adjectives that every thought of the heart was only evil continually. These false teachers are that way sexually. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls. In other words, everything is ultimately about fulfilling their own sexual desires. But again, right now, for today, we'll just leave it at that point. This is flamboyant immorality. They don't care. There are pastors in America that have been caught 
cheating on their spouses. And so they divorce their spouse and marry the person they were cheating with and they continue on in ministry as though nothing happened. They're doing it in the daytime. They're not hiding it. They don't care. One of the side aspects of the Me Too movement is you're seeing over and over the exposure of the number of pastors that sexually abused their congregants or their staff or others. I don't want to go down a side road, but the point is they were doing it in the daytime. Some of them tried to hide it, but they didn't try very hard. We're seeing it all around us, and we'll see more of this shameful picture the next time we're together. So join me as I close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would protect us from men that you're describing in Second Peter. Lord, protect every elder at Lakeside. Protect me, protect Rig, protect Pastor Steve, Pastor Jack, Pastor Joel, Pastor Spencer. Lord, all of us, protect us from becoming these types of men. Lord, help us never to wander down those roads. And I pray that you would protect all the people at Lakeside, all the people of Faith Builders, that you protect them from these types of evil teachers. And if they see these types of traits in any of the teachers they're listening to, they'll know, turn away. And Lord, we pray that you'll continue to build your church. Satan will send demons and false teachers and everyone else to try and lead people astray. But Lord, you're building your church and the gates of hell can't stand against it. So I pray that you will use us as you continue to establish your church for your glory. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.